North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. I want to talk about how the church responded, and some of this is more various than, than maybe we remember, partly because I think our, our memory of the martyrs is more or less nonspecific. So our memory may be more detailed in some cases than the idea that the martyrs were just, you know, slain by lions uh, sometime around the time that gladiators were also fighting. We might have a little more detail than that. But our memory is largely heroic and, and probably confined to figures like Polycarp. That is not, we try to talk about persecution broadly in the first hour. Uh, we want to talk about the reaction to persecution somewhat broadly as well in the second hour. Because uh, 
there are certain things that when you add the angle of persecution to them uh, in church history, you will understand very differently. Um, but even if you think about persecution more broadly, you can see that the fate of the martyrs, or even specific stories of individual martyrs, is a very small percentage of what can be said. Since we have no indication that the Roman state was actually capable of killing everybody and never even tried. So if that's the case, if it's the case that they are simply incapable of achieving extermination of the church, even where they put a, an, an empire-wide test in place to find Christians in the case of required sacrifice in the imperial cult, even where actual extermination or full suppression is impossible, even in that case, what happened to all the people that survived? What did they do? How did they react and how did they go on living after persecution either ended systemically with toleration in 313 or prior to that when a given persecution lessened in intensity? Okay. So let's talk about kind of your uh, most negative reactions by the Christians, let's say theologically negative, right? One I already mentioned, and that is what's called a traditor. Traitor doesn't quite capture it, the entirety of that in English. But something to think about would be, for example, when you have uh, the rescript commanding sacrifice, you get at the end a certificate called a libellus, uh, from which this group that procures these certificates are called libelli. Okay, So we have no analogy for that in English, really, but they're certificate holders. And they hold a certificate saying that they offered sacrifice to the imperial cult. Let's set aside the clergy for a second because reactions by the clergy or things done to the clergy are kind of a separate class for reasons that are intuitive, but we'll talk about. Average Christians who procure certificates are, in many cases, people who did actually offer sacrifice and then got a certificate. That protects them legally. It obviously, like we said earlier with the, this idea of, okay, the tremors have stopped between church and state because you resolved that tension, but now that tremor comes into the church. That's true corporately for the church. That's also true individually for the Christians. So, okay, you did what the government asked you to do. Can you now remain a member of the church because you have now formally worshipped another god. Okay. The reactions to that will vary widely, and the best, really, maybe the best sense of church life that we have, anything like analogous to our own, you can find if you look into the North Africans. Okay. Uh, and that's partly because they have so many churches, and the pastors of individual congregations in rather small towns continue to be called bishops and to continue to convene in councils and synods long after that kind of work of decision-making has been kind of kicked upstairs in other parts of the church, where bishop comes to mean a man in charge of an important city, church, uh, and those bishops come together. The North Africans retain what is apparently an older pattern of life, somewhat more like our own, where you have a pastor and a congregation and then you have decision-making bodies on the basis of that foundation. So they have more councils than almost anyone else. And some of the things that they discuss, so these are not martyrdom accounts. These are in all the stuff in 
ecumenical councils, but also in other councils, local councils that were held that no one knows about or cares about. Most of the stuff that they do is similar to like the Synod Handbook and disciplinary actions. And that's most of what they spend most of their time working with because that answers very practical problems. The, the doctrinal discussion is a relatively small percentage of what they're actually talking about. So the questions that come up are, is someone who offered sacrifice allowed back in? And of course, you can see that one, one thing that happens in persecution is that it reveals fissures that were there in the church. So persecution is for the persecuted a, a, a time of revelation, not of divine revelation inspired by the Spirit, but of an opening up or an unveiling of what was previously maybe, maybe grasped but not seen, and now it is no longer hidden. So the strict sense of that word revelation. Okay. In that time of revelation, you can have people who say, yes, they can come back in. You will have people who will say they may come in, they may come back in immediately upon repentance. Repentance in this time and place always being public. They may come back in after a time of penance. And in defense of why this even becomes a question in the Western church and questions of, you know, how long does it take to work off certain sins, you know, not speaking in defense of purgatory, okay? So there's my lexical disclaimer, guys. I just feel the need. I don't know everyone in the room, so. Okay. Okay. Not in defense of purgatory. The pastoral insight behind the concept of penance is that people's souls take a while to heal from certain things. There are always medical metaphors used in connection with these kinds of discussions. So it takes a while for, it takes relatively longer to get over the fact that you, you know, punched your brother in a, in a fit of rage than that you decided to get yourself a certificate uh, through sacrificing in order to keep whatever it was that you were trying to hold on to in life. You were willing to worship another god. That's a more grievous wound. That's the insight. You can agree or disagree with that. That's the insight that they were working off and the, the pastoral presumption they were working off for saying, this person for this sin may come back into communion immediately. This person for this other sin may not. It is inadvisable. Something they are doing coherently, and this did happen sporadically among us last year, but not on any kind of enormous scale, is they are pretty much always making decisions corporately, the, 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 the clergy, okay? So the function of a local council, even if this local council and that local council don't make the precise same decision about the nature of repentance, is, however, that if you go anywhere within any realm that anyone's going to physically get to, you will find a pastor with the same standards. Now, the other thing to say is that that takes a lot of work. That's not something that they don't have a pre-existent structure where a lot of times we're upset that more is not happening with our pre-existent structure. But the thing is, even where the structure exists, work is required to maintain it or to make it operative and worthwhile. And if that work is not done, then decisions are not made. And then you're just that pastor that has that opinion. And here's another pastor that has another opinion. So, and technologically, we couldn't work off the same small areas that they did because our people can get to lots of places. I woke up in California yesterday morning. So they, uh, they have synods, councils within, let's say, walking distance 
which is pretty much all that any normal person is going to traverse. There are often larger regional ones, and then regionally, like if you're talking about an ecumenical council, you're probably talking about the two big honchos in a given province or something are going to go to that. So there are levels of these things. On the most local level, we do know that the North Africans were making decisions about things like this. So you can come in, you can come in immediately, you can come in not so immediately. There are also people that believe that this kind of betrayal is unforgivable, not usually in the case of uh, a lay Christian. In the case of the clergy, when the clergy have done something like that, have become libelli, okay, which is one problem, you got the certificate, um, and they, they do, some people recognize uh, that there's a difference between procuring the certificate and actually having done the action that it took to get the certificate, but those are both a problem. If that's the case, it is one thing for someone who is not given charge over souls to do it. It's another thing for the bishops of the church to do it, and if they do it, then it becomes a whole separate question. So when you have, and I mentioned the, I mentioned the word schism earlier, when you have a schism, uh, there are multiple possibly large ones in the North African church over the issue of persecution prior to the schism that produces Donatism, okay? where you have a whole separate functioning for centuries later afterward church body that uh, has its own set of bishops, its own uh, martyrdom stories. There are Donatist-specific martyrdom stories about their persecution, not only by the Romans, but also by the Catholics. But what that does is that reveals fissures that were already there. That is, if you look into the Donatists, you will find that they are overwhelmingly rural. The Catholics are overwhelmingly urban. The Donatists overwhelmingly speak Berber. The Catholics speak Latin. The Donatists, therefore, are natives. The Catholics are at least led by people like Cyprian, who are colonial elite descended peoples, Romans, okay? So there are these fissures which are ethnic and linguistic and etc. Those open up and become chasms in a case of persecution. And why does it become a chasm in the case of the Donatists? Because the Donatists not being themselves elite and therefore having really nothing to gain by going along with this regime refuse refuse to recognize any clergyman who betrays the church in any way. They cannot recognize him as legitimate, and therefore they cannot, and this is probably what you know about Donatism if you heard about it before, they cannot recognize his actions as legitimate. Notice that in church history, it's really only that very last thing that I said that we ever talk about. We talk about that doctrinal formulation that well, if the pastor that baptized me later went on and did this bad thing, that doesn't invalidate my baptism. Yes, that's true. But the immediate context of Donatism is about specifically the betrayal of the church by people that were already kind of alien to you in daily life. And now they're also telling you that whether they themselves betrayed or not, you need to accept betrayers back into the family of God even though they endangered lives and, in the thinking of the Donatists, denied the faith. Okay. 
So I'm explaining this kind of sympathetically from a Donatist perspective, and the reason is that the Donatist schism is a really good example of the doctrine stays the same on both sides. The Donatists don't come up with a new doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? It's not a, a, a heretical action. It's caused because there is a very differing evaluation of what practice should have been taken, and then once those steps were taken, what steps should have been taken in view of those actions during persecution. It's a really good example of the idea that the judgment of life is intrinsic to the church's capacity to maintain or, to, or key to its loss of unity. Now, in the case of the Donatist schism, you have a church that endures as such long after uh, the occasion for its coming into being uh, has come and gone. Because that is so, lots of other things change. It's not all you could say about Donatus. But because that is so, I think something also to recognize is that persecution is always what you might call an inflection point in a church's history. It doesn't go through it and then forget about it. That is, the idea that we said was false for other reasons earlier is false for this reason too, that something comes and goes. And in the case of a given wave of persecution, that is easy to recognize. For instance, in the life of Cyprian, a Catholic bishop in North Africa, there are waves of persecution in the last of which he dies. There are times between those times when he is not in danger of his life. Okay? So it is easy to recognize that the government gets interested in something, it goes after it for a long time and then forgets about it or moves on or a war starts or there's a bigger economic problem and then it's over. That is easy to recognize. But from the church's perspective, the experience of persecution and then behavior during persecution is never something that kind of comes and then goes away. People don't forget about it because it is not the same thing as, you know, some kind of marital scandal or something which is almost pedestrian by comparison. Because the question to the clergyman is not on the part of the Roman state, do you have uh, sins of some kind? Uh, are you morally perfect or something? The question is, will you take what is the church's and give it to us whenever we demand it? And the state does not officially need what are called the treasures of the church. I mean, they don't need specific gospel books or vestments or something specifically. They have their own stuff. The point is about compliance, right? So when we're saying that they're not interested in doctrine, we don't mean that they won't ask you questions about this or that they won't try to find out, as they do in the case of Lawrence in Rome, that they won't you know, try to pry more when you give an answer. But the point is always compliance. It's never the specifics of your understanding. So for instance, when Lawrence says in the story of his martyrdom, here are the treasures of the church, and he points to all the poor people he takes care of, okay? He's being funny, which is kind of a, it's a theme in Lawrence's story, right? He gets put on the griddle, turn me over, I'm done on this side, right? Okay, so he's just kind of a funny guy. We appreciate that about him. We love him for that. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, he also understands that they're playing games. That's why you would use humor with people, because you get that this is not about a serious answer to a sincere question. 
When it does occur, however, therefore the answers that are given and the actions that are taken become decisive for their understanding of what was going on in the past and their understanding of what must happen in the future. And the schism occurs between the Donatists and the Catholics. Those are Augustine's terms, right? The Donatists, of course, don't call themselves Donatists. The schism between the Donatists and the Catholics is because of something that happened before the actual occasion of, okay, who should be the Bishop of Carthage? That was the occasion to remember. Remember when we completely disagreed about how to react to this? So the persecution is over just at that moment of appointment, and now the question is, who is the legitimate bishop? And now we're going to review these different men's actions in the past. So officially, persecution is over, but its effect is not in the body of Christ. You think about this in terms of the Missouri Synod, sometimes the telling of why is there a Missouri Synod will start with, I think, a very obscure historical figure, which is a generally kind of peaceable, family-minded, intensely pious king of Prussia, okay. Frederick William IV. So uh, persecution can not only create entirely new church bodies, but it also creates their sense of why they are different from other churches. I mentioned Cyprian already, and we'll finish with Cyprian, but I want to kind of step back from North Africa for a while just to talk in more generalities about uh, Christian reactions in the same way that I talked about Roman reactions in the first hour. So to step back, uh, in martyrdom accounts especially, you can see a vast difference between when Christians are taken in groups and when they are taken up by some form of law enforcement or maybe for interrogation by a proconsul that is an interrogation that will lead to death. There's a vast difference between the two reactions. It seems to be most often, that the Christians are being looked for in groups and then only secondarily by name. Now, secondarily by name means that there will be a persecution and many people will die before anyone who will later become famous dies. A good example of this is Polycarp in Smyrna. Um, that's Asia Minor, now Izmir, Turkey. Polycarp is described in the life that's written about him as having put a seal on the martyrdom, on the persecution that was occurring in that church. Prior to his death and prior to the account that we have of it, many people in the church of Smyrna died. So think about it this way. If, if you're not supposed to be shocked by persecution, even persecution unto death, realize that they're going to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and there is a fresh martyr or two from that week. So the idea of meeting under dangerous circumstances uh, should take on a different meaning for you because uh, they are meeting under potential penalty of death and they are eventually found. Now the manner in which they're found is important, I think, for our understanding of what it is that we are supposed to do in relationship to the government. Christians would generally, we said illegal, that is unrecognized, but they were also generally not turning in one another for anything. So you are practicing a religion that is not recognized by the empire. This is a legal problem at certain times and places. 
we don't have instances of Christians turning one another in, except during persecutions. But even during persecutions, here is how, in the case of Polycarp and Cyprian, it happens. Someone connected to the Christian, not necessarily also a Christian, but familiar with his daily life, is taken in by the authorities and interrogated, often tortured, in order to find the other Christian. Why do they have to do that? Partly because people in the ancient world don't have identifying documents. Uh, Our governments, if they wanted to do things like this, would not need to go to the same trouble. They could probably guess much more easily, certainly from the GPS locator on our phones, where we are. Not that hard. But the church is not going to people and informing them where they are. They are not registering, uh, and they do not seek registration. So the idea of, okay, well, what happens in 313? Christianity is recognized as okay. Were the Christians seeking that beforehand? No, they were not. Were they trying to become legitimate legally? No, they were not. This is not a goal that they have. And that is important to keep in mind, especially when you're thinking about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, is that the Christian's corporate existence is legally at least gray, if not black market. And that's the church that is both producing and receiving the New Testament. This is not a church that has all its I's dotted and its T's crossed, legally speaking. Okay? They don't seek and they do not obtain the same kind of recognition that certain other cults do, especially like the cult of Mithras, which was very popular in the army. Okay. So their gray market, at best, uh, turns into black market during a persecution as a religion. When names are asked for, so the best example of this is Cyprian, because Cyprian, because of his education, he was prepared to go through the the course of honors that a Roman would go through, Cyprian is asked, what are the names of your presbyters, right? You're the bishop, we have you. What are the names of your presbyters? And he says, it is, he has two grounds. One, I I will not tell you. Two, it is illegal under your own law for me to tell you. Now, this is very interesting because in relationship to this ethnic identity thing, Cyprian alienates himself from Roman law to a certain degree by describing it as your law to the proconsul, even though it is also Cyprian's, also ethnically, because he is himself a Roman. Your law says it is illegal for people to become informants, and therefore I refuse to go along with it. They will use law selectively, not so much to get themselves off the hook as a way to keep themselves safe and to preserve life for some amount of time. Okay. All right. That's when, whether they're taken in groups or not, they are interrogated individually. Uh, Let me say a little bit more about their kind of relationship to the law, and then we'll talk about death, properly speaking. But their relationship to the law is always, it's rather dismissive. Okay. That is... They find that practices are highly important. Um, That's probably why also you get a three-chapter discussion on relationship to pagan societies in 1 Corinthians that people rarely talk about, which is meat sacrificed to idols. 
Okay, and I know that that's kind of arcane for us, but it matters a lot for them. But the idea that you would simply go along with something is not indicated either by their words or by their attitude when brought before governmental officials. I cannot say that they are extremely respectful. They are not disrespectful. That is, they will use proper titles for officials. They will not try to resist arrest, for example. But they are not seeking to please uh, or even really to convince other than to preach generally about judgment to the people who have taken them in or who are abusing them. And often they will use humor even where a question of law is at issue. For example, when uh, just before Polycarp's arrest, uh, the last group of Christians is killed before they find him and bring him in, and you probably know this story, uh, the crowds inside the arena, because this is all set within the spectacles, the public games that are the major form of entertainment in cities in the ancient world, uh, the crowds say, away with the atheists, describing the Christians, because the Christians do not profess belief in the gods. Polycarp hears about this. He is on an estate in a suburb, uh, and he is brought into the city, handled very roughly, thrown out of the carriage that they brought him in on. He's kind of limping and pretending not to limp on his way into the arena. When he gets into the arena, he is given various formulae by which he can avoid death. Different ways, things he could say, then he's good to go, he'll be dismissed, have some regard for your age. Polycarp says, before he is tied to the stake and burned, gesturing toward the crowd, away with the atheists, right? And the joke there is that he is not taking entirely seriously really the jurisdiction and the gravity of the jurisdiction that these people are trying to exercise, which is over his life. So there's something, and this is my formulation, there's something that pops up in Peonius of Smyrna, Polycarp of Smyrna, and a couple other places. And I, I call it, I made this up, so whatever, who cares, you know? Uh, <laughs> the doctrine of the two fires, because their preaching always sounds like this. You will burn me with a fire that lasts for a time, but you must repent lest you be burned with a fire that burns forever. This comes up over and over again as an explanation of why they are not afraid, because all you have is a fire that burns for a time, and an explanation of what they believe the stakes are. There is a fire that lasts forever. Now, the examples that I have been using just now have largely been from Asia Minor. The North Africans will also make reference to these two fires in their martyrdom accounts, but it gives you a sense of something that I think is somewhat hard for us to grasp, which is how seriously they take the reality of hell and the stakes of their own actions. Okay. And this is somewhat like the discussion of persecution. I do not say this to be alarmist or to have some sort of revival of a certain style of preaching or something when you talk about hell. However, their actions really would not be what they were if they did not believe that if in this moment they deny Christ, they will go to hell. They certainly will go to hell, even if they live. Whereas they can die and not deny Christ, and then they will not go to hell. They take it very seriously as just sort of if I don't get in this lane, I'm not getting off the interstate here, and I'll be forced to get off somewhere that I don't want to get off. That's just, 
That's the way the lanes work. That's just how reality is set up. So they don't think of hell as kind of a, a scare tactic or something to be mentioned, sort of you're a little uncomfortable when you talk about it. They just think of it as a realistic destination for unfaithfulness. Therefore, also, they talk about hell very frequently, even to the unbelieving consuls, proconsuls, and various officials that arrest them. Because they think about end things in that way, I think you can understand how and why, in addition to the emotional or physical impacts of persecution, how and why schisms occur in connection with persecution. Because when you say that someone has, for instance, been traitorous, okay, that's one thing. There's always the possibility of repentance, but he was traitorous and he had charge of the church's things and the word of God, then he has betrayed something that is sort of, I mean, it would be, it's a difference between a private being terrified of battle and, you know, your general officer just surrendering the entire army to the opposing force. So, especially problems in and created by the clergy are absolutely essential, not only to these schisms, why are they? the clergy, uh, but also how it all gets sorted out or doesn't, also the behavior and the teaching of the clergy. The Romans do, if they don't at the beginning, they do figure that out. You have in the case of Peonius, who is kind of a, a, a Smyrnaean bishop that doesn't get remembered as much as Polycarp, Peonius is reminded during his interrogation that uh, I'm sorry, Peonius is a presbyter. He's reminded that his bishop, Euctemon, has denied the faith by the Roman official. So they, they keep track of which clergy are where. And so Peonius says very clearly, I will not do as the liar Euctemon did. So everyone has in his mind a kind of scorecard during, during a persecution, and that scorecard is heavily weighted toward the behavior of the clergy. And the Romans know that, so they will therefore target the clergy, hoping thereby to obviously demoralize the rest of the Christians, but also maybe to end the problem because the churches often dissolve when the clergy themselves their, their wills and their resolve themselves dissolve. So the clergy are always a target. It's why martyrdom accounts are probably weighted more heavily toward clergy than you would otherwise. You think, is this really, are they really most people who died in persecution? Weren't there other Christians? And there are, they just generally are not remembered by name. And the significance of the death of a clergyman is enormous. In the case of Cyprian in Carthage, Cyprian is, however, despite the fact that this is not only not the first persecution in his life, it's also certainly not the first persecution in the North African church. He is the first Carthaginian bishop to die. That doesn't mean everyone else was a traitor, but not everyone else died, not even the bishop, during a persecution. So I think that when you think about persecution, I'm accenting this, I think we think about it as we're going to be killed all of us. This is in fact not what happens. Some are killed. The attempt is made to demoralize all and no one goes through a persecution the same as he was before it started. 
that is what occurs. The church has a lot more spiritual problems dealing with reactions to the persecution than with simple destruction or extermination, like there just are no more Christians. What it's going to take in North Africa for that to happen will be Muslim invasion, because Muslims will actually kill. The Romans are not interested in that. So absent a specific ideology authorizing holy war, which the Romans don't have, the church is not in danger of being completely exterminated. It's in danger of being spineless. A different problem. I don't think it's actually spiritually less dangerous. It's just a different problem. Okay. Some things that we could spend time on I don't think are, are terribly interesting because they're so obvious. That is, more Christians uh, go astray when they're isolated, either during interrogation or also during execution. More people will uh, remain successful in staying together and confessing when they are incarcerated together or when they uh, actually face death together, as is the case with some, especially when they're given to the animals, uh, the lions, the tigers. Okay. Uh, but what I want to spend most of the balance of the time talking about is the specific case of Cyprian's life, because I think it gives you a sense of breadth of persecution uh, and also of reaction. Okay. So we mentioned before Cyprian is a, is, is a Roman. Um, he grows up in North Africa, and uh, he is not educated as a Christian. He's educated as a Roman for activity in Roman government. When he becomes a Christian... Uh, he already begins to lose because he is proscribed, meaning his estates and accounts are taken away from him by the government because he is a Christian. That is simply a cost of becoming a Christian. That means that entry into the church, not even into the episcopate, but entry into the church entails an obvious social cost that the church asks people to bear. Okay. This is different, not necessarily from every decision we make, but certainly from many of our reflexes, which is when we know that there will be a cost to asking something of someone, we don't necessarily ask him straightforwardly to bear it. We and he try to find a way for him not to bear it if he doesn't have to, which is also understandable. But I think when those costs are sufficiently predictable, the church either asks them and just people adapt, or it stops asking them, which is a live option. Think about it this way. We have an enormous difficulty in any society that we have to evangelize that is polytheistic, because what polytheistic societies often do with the gospel is they simply incorporate the, the gospel into the pantheon they already have. Okay, this is, happens over and over and over again. Think about the fact that the Christian church didn't do that. We have arguments about the nature of divinity. Okay? And you know, if you want, your best argument against what I just said would be to look at the nature of the cult of the saints in a certain way. Okay. But on a formal level, we don't even try. We don't even try to incorporate, which would be so easy, just make Jesus the biggest person in a pantheon, allow people in a subterranean way, maybe if you're really embarrassed by it, to continue offering sacrifices in various ways and just call it good and move on. 
you could have expanded much more rapidly that way, and you probably could have got more people like Cyprian, who are immensely talented and capable and well-resourced into the church because they would have all of that and they could keep it even after baptism. Baptism involves a cutting off that is itself just a circumstance of persecution. So if you think about it broadly, like we talked about in the first hour, then you understand that persecution is just the operating circumstance of being Christian in this world. They accept that, and the specific cost to begin with for Cyprian is proscription. Now, fascinatingly, some of those lands are actually bought by the church and given back to him. So when he is arrested, he will be arrested on his own land because it was bought by the church and given back to him as compensation when it was put up for auction by the government. That entails the thing that I really want to press home and, and make application of, and that is the notion of solidarity. You don't find the Christians generally reacting, except among people who have a lot to lose in this world, which would be especially the wealthy Latin-speaking elites of Carthage. One example. You don't find the Christians behaving in a way that is about their individual compliance or this person or that person's individual compliance. They know what the standards are. The question is, will, whom will they go against? Will they go against the church or will they go against what the state is asking? There aren't provided lots of options for, well, you, you're a Christian, but we did two completely different things and that's fine. The church reacts with solidarity. You can tell this in all kinds of ways. A really minor example of it in the whole scheme of things is the fact that they take martyrdom accounts with, with the details, the specifics, which kind of official arrested which bishop when, and they incorporate those legal documents and make them liturgical documents that are read on anniversaries. That means that the church centers both what it hears and then also in the case of, of uh, relics of the martyrs, uh, the actual let's say, archive that they keep, the church's life is centered around what happened to martyrs. So the Christian is asked, also in preaching on the martyrs, to identify with martyrs. This is really the only way to understand the disappointment that someone like Origen feels that he was never able to be a martyr. So you have to understand that they're talking about martyrdom in a way which is somewhat similar to how American boys were raised or maybe still are raised to idolize sports figures. They're disappointed that they weren't more talented or disappointed that they weren't taller or faster or stronger, whatever they needed to be in order to be just like the heroes about whom they heard so much when they were boys. It's really hard to understand why martyrdom is such a big deal for the earliest Christians unless you see how they were their heroes. And so what you do to that person in his memory when you make him a hero is he begins not to belong to himself anymore. His legacy is not private. His legacy is not individual. Because along with his story, which is individual and in the past for the person hearing it, is a call in almost every martyrdom account to imitate the martyrs. So this is a person who did something that you could also do. 
you may be called upon to do this very same thing, and when you are, you should behave like he did. You should not behave, for instance, like Quintus, who in the story of, um, I think this is Polycarp, Quintus puts himself forward for martyrdom. Polycarp, like all the legitimate martyrs, is found, like Jesus in Gethsemane, and taken to his death. Quintus volunteers. He jumps in front of the government official and says, I'm a Christian. And then, when it comes time to denounce Christ or die, what does he do? He denounces Christ. Because the will that is willful and puts itself forward is one that is also unsteady. They have a big insistence that the martyr is imitating Christ, and when you imitate the martyr, you are imitating Christ. So if you are to go to your death, then you will not have to seek your death, but you will be found, and then you will die gloriously. The adverb gloriously shows you something else that they're trying to inspire through what they hear in church, among other places. And that is an, an idea of martyrdom, not just persecution, but martyrdom as athletic glory for a Christian. Okay. So the concept of a crown in the New Testament, this is also true for the martyrdom accounts. A crown is not just something that a king wears in the ancient world. It's somewhat more often and more famously something that an athlete wears when he is victorious. And when you think about things like pain or suffering, a question you could ask yourself is, why am I in pain? Why am I suffering? But if you're an athlete, it would be stupid to ask that. You're in pain because you are training or you are playing and you are suffering because you're not doing well enough or you're doing so well, but the game in the contest is not over yet. So you're going to continue to be in pain until it is, but then you will be covered in glory. So the pain and the suffering are neither mysterious nor unproductive. If they talk about martyrs like athletes who have fought the good fight, that's Paul, then they're talking about people who have horrific things in front of them, unimaginably difficult things, but things that are therefore anticipated and even welcomed when they come. Because they are evidence that you are conquering in a way that is given to few. So they're thinking of martyrdom, okay? There's a whole body of Christ and not everybody's gonna be a martyr. Even when there are people being killed, not everyone will be killed, not everyone will even be arrested, even among the faithful. But you want to be a martyr. You hope that you get called to be a martyr. And the difference between that psychology and the one probably more familiar to us of being perplexed by any suffering of any kind, even poor health in old age, where it's just naturally predictable. It doesn't even have to have any political or theological wonder to it. Okay. Is completely opposite to the way that uh, the Christians, especially in the martyrdom accounts, but also in the New Testament, are talking about pain and suffering. These are things to be welcomed on the way to glory in the same way that an athlete is happy to feel hurt and stretched and tired after he trains or plays. Okay. So they're thinking of martyrs as athletes. Those are the best athletes. You're training so that you are in a position and a condition to play in that contest if you are called upon. And there are several 
ways that you can tell that they did train people for this. The chief one is something I mentioned earlier. It's a slogan. The reason you give people slogans is so that things become automatic for them. This is part of what we're doing pedagogically when we teach people to say creeds. It's not because it's interesting for the 7,000th time that you've said this creed and you're just stunned and you know, emotionally overwhelmed by the theological realities hidden therein. You should be, but we all know that we're not every time we say it. The reason you do it is so that it becomes reflexive. They give people a slogan to say reflexively because when called in, they will be asked to identify themselves. The slogan they give them is Christianus, or in the case of a woman, Christiana sum in Latin. And that means not just that, that I am a Christian, like there's a pronoun and then there's a noun, and my pronoun fits somewhere within that noun, but also my name is Christian, as if that were your first name, or Christiana, as if that were your first name. A couple things are happening there. One is you are not identifying yourself when the government asks you to identify yourself. This is like the standard advice given to people who protest anything, which is when asked a question, do not respond. Okay. I'm just repeating that for your benefit. Just, just in case, right? Do not respond, right? So they're not really responding. Uh, when they do, they'll say interesting things. So there's a, a kind of a small account, Carpus Papalus and Agathoniki. And Carpus says, my name is Christian, but my name according to this world is Carpus. Okay, so he is compliant in giving his actual legal name, but he answers first with the slogan. Most of them will just say the slogan. They will not provide their name. Bishops do this, presbyters do this, laity do this. They just give the slogan. I am a Christian. That's it. Or, or I am Christian, okay? That slogan also shows you that they are prepared for other things, which you can see from some of their behavior. For example, they have been taught, and it's explicitly mentioned in several accounts, not to volunteer for arrest, suffering, or death. <coughs> and I think that the insight there is not just that this is not how Jesus did it, but it's also that if you do it this way, you probably will renege on your commitment, and that's going to demoralize everybody. So why don't you wait until you're forced to suffer? Um, and that is highlighted in many accounts, that they, they were led, they were taken, they were brought. They, they were not forced. And in the case of Cyprian, Cyprian dies uh, after having been found in a garden praying, just like Jesus. So they are taken and they're not in a rush. When Polycarp is arrested, he asks his jailers to wait for an hour. He serves them food and he prays for them. And then they get in the carriage and then they kind of... He goes for a rough ride, right? And then they throw him out of the carriage and then he's killed, okay? So there is a calm about them. In order to attain calm under those circumstances, so I'm not, I'm not as dubious of many of the martyrdom accounts as some people that, that read these accounts are about the emotional reactions. I do think that human beings, when they train for things, can perform in astounding ways. If that's true of mothers who believe their children are about to die or, you know, babies trapped under cars and the strength that men attain at certain times. I think especially if you anticipate that this could happen to you, you really can train for it so that you, in fact, as related, do not cry out when you are burned. Okay. 
the expectation of death can, I think, produce a very different kind of a human being than the sense much more common among us that death is very strange and therefore unwanted and therefore we are not trained for it when it comes. So they are training because there is a control of emotion that is exhibited. And this is not so much a stoic thing. There is some emotion, but it is not, um, it's not involuntary screaming, as you might imagine, if you're being stabbed or eaten or burned. Uh, it will be prayer. So there's imitation of especially Jesus and Luke's gospel and St. Stephen. There is prayer for the enemy. There is also prayer for the reception of the spirit, which is a confession of hope. Okay, so like when Agothoniki is being burned, she says, Lord, 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 receive my spirit. There's also an assertion and, you know, how they know this, who knows, but there's also an assertion uh, in most cases of the martyrs that they have or they themselves are the occasion of miraculous sights at their death. And again, I just don't possess enough skepticism to just say, no, that didn't happen. They made that part up. Who knows? And maybe they did. I don't know. I don't know what they saw, right? I don't know what they were given to see. So I would say that the whole body is obviously training people to go through these things. And when certain people are called upon to go through these things, then they are put into a realm of experience that is foreign to the rest of the body, but recognized as privileged and wonderful, so that others also begin to desire it, especially through the repetition of these accounts. They desire it so much that there is a line at the end of the account, not of the martyrdom of Cyprian, there are two of those, but the life of Cyprian, uh, written by an anonymous writer, but written in certain parts in the first person singular. And he's talking about Cyprian's, Cyprian is of course beheaded because he's a Roman. Right? So he's treated with much greater honor. But the church is looking on. The church has gathered around him at the moment of his death. And the writer was there too. And he describes his emotions at the time of Cyprian's death. And he says they are very mixed. Whether of great joy for him or of sadness not that he was taken, but why? That I could not share this fate with my captain. Okay. So that's a thinking where we are all in combat. And I do not want to be out. I, I mean, even though it's dangerous and I could die, I would rather be in combat with my people than safe and at home and continue to live on while he has attained this glory. So the mourning at the death of Cyprian is mourning that more were not permitted to die with him. That sentiment is one that I think very often is just totally lost. The sense that we are gathered around a certain experience of life and that life could issue in death at the hands of the powers of this age and that that would be the absolute best thing that could happen to us. And the church's solidarity is such that when that death occurs, they are there. They're also there to gather up the remains afterward, which they will sometimes be denied. But they are there not only in order to witness, but to see something that they understand to be the best possible thing that could happen. So the church's reaction to persecution is not a plea for understanding or legality, 
they in fact generally disregard <laughs> acquiring either of those from the broader society or the government. But it is a desire to see uh, not only all persevere, and when they don't, there are enormous problems uh, when there is betrayal. But it is, I think, even more than that, a desire to see certain people excel in the life that is in Christ athletically and to share that excellence with them. We have a little bit of time, and I can say a few more things, but I want to see where you guys are, what your questions are, what your thoughts are. We have about five, ten minutes. I don't know. Anyway, yes, sir. I was thinking of the, of the context, the milieu in which all this happened. I suspect it was around for quite a while because I, what came to my mind was the uh, humor of Socrates mm -hmm. and how he mocked his persecutors as well. And that was mm -hmm. about 400 years before. Mm -hmm. So this must have been in the culture for quite some time already. Yeah. Um, the idea of calmness in death is around for a long time. It's not, the calmness and is mockery. not unique. And mockery, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also the case that Christianity is, is called, also sometimes by the Christians, a philosophy. Because the understanding of philosophy is not of a certain theoretical system, although there are always dogmas, but of a, uh, a way of living. Yep. So, yeah, Dan, go ahead. Would the genuineness of the people seeking martyrdom mm -hmm. be every question, like, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, or you're just seeking this glory for yourself. You mean by the church? By the church or by the potential martyrs, the ones who desire it as a, a glorious thing. Only the, 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 the finest Christians in the ranks of martyrs, but mm -hmm. it's not something to just seek out, like you mentioned. Like, you're not supposed to go out and volunteer yourself. Yes, yeah. And the insistence there is that the events in the life of Jesus are not just examples in the sense that, you know, here's, a, here's an example of how to write an A in cursive. And then the A that I write is like, kind of like a lot like that. The idea is that if I'm in Christ, then I will live Christ's life. So it's paradigmatic, but there's only one paradigm, and I fit into it. So I can't, therefore, volunteer, because that would not be the way of Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, Mike. Could you speak to, just briefly, some of the counter argument of the time within the church. In other words, what we would say is the, the wrong thinking about this glorious life of, of suffering yeah. and martyrdom. Yeah. 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 Um, this is, this has to be, it, it's, it's harder to do that because it can't be discerned from documents in the same way that the accounts of martyrdom can be. Um, you would have to observe from actions that, for instance, bishops will hoard martyrs' relics in certain places. So Constantinople, for existence, isn't really of any account, and then it's of enormous account. It's of enormous political significance. So in order to aggrandize the uh, the diocese and the seat there, they will bring in martyrs' relics from all over the place. Um, so. You can see one thing that happens is that um, those who have not suffered these things, either in later generations or in their own, are not necessarily denouncing the martyrs. They're just not really supporting them. You know, so um, it's not 
in the case of Peonius, I mean, he's basically saying, like, your district president denied the faith, so, like, what are you doing? I mean, that, that's what happens. The guy above you denied the faith. What are you doing? You know, this is supposed to be uh, big-time evidence against Peonius's stubbornness. Um, there are sometimes arguments against martyrdom on the basis of uh, it, it, it seems like a, just your own psychological problem. So in the case of Cyprian, Cyprian is denounced by the proconsul as simply obstinate. And he's, he's, he's belittled. He's portrayed as a mere tutor. You were tutoring people in um, illegitimate uh, ways of life. Kind of almost implying that he's somehow teaching pornographic material. I mean, like, who knows? But, but belittling and demeaning what he does for a living and what he's chosen to do and saying that it's just this kind of purely emotionally based now, that's a perception by an outsider. Within the church, I would say that the reason that things are usually betrayed is because something big is at stake. That's why rural churches, in the case of the Donatists, are totally united on the question of resistance because they have nothing to gain. It's much easier to be firm when you have nothing to lose in this world. When you have a lot to lose, it's, you know, everything's more complicated, you know, yeah. Dave. So, you said the effect of persecution remains after the persecution, and uh, the church continues to define the church. Yeah. So if we if we're in the if we've come through a sort of let's say lockdowns eighteen mm -hmm. months ago. Yeah. Or how how do you think uh, how do you think this this defining us or will continue to yeah. define us? Um, one way that it's continuing to define us is that you have like an evolving constellation of words and phrases that indicate that you're trying to be kind of chill about it, but that tells you nothing about what the guy actually did or what's actually occurring in that church. Um, so there's a desire to be reasonable with each other, which I think is laudable, but because there is so infrequently open discussion of things, so for instance, I think kind of a natural, one scriptural category we could be using on the question of you and I have radically different convictions about um, uh, microbiology, essentially. Okay. Uh, we have these radically different convictions. They can't actually be resolved directly by the word of God. So how do we deal with this? Well, we have to figure out how we can have two classes of people with totally differently informed consciences inside the church since the issue itself shouldn't actually determine whether one of us has to be kicked out of the church. So we need to stay in, so how do we stay in? Well, we have to be able to provide accommodation. So I think if I say, very, if I say this, it this way, um, I don't know of a single Missouri Synod church, and I do get around some, where you're not allowed to go to church if you wear a mask. And you're not allowed to go to church if you're vaccinated, right? But I certainly know of places that you can't go to church if you're not wearing a mask. And the vaccination thing, I, I think, will become a live issue if and when we have vaccine mandates in sufficiently large places for large enough times so that it becomes sort of like a condition of living, right? And so if I live in this place where you have to be vaccinated in order to go to the mall, then of course you need to be vaccinated to go into the church. We can live in a world where you can be vaccinated and wear a mask or not and all be in the church. But we can't live in a world where the opposite is, where, where masks and vaccines are required. I mean, it just, it can't happen unless you can make a theological case that you must, and it's 
open and shut, like you must not kill innocent children in the womb. Open and shut. There's really, I mean, what argument do you have biblically against that? <laughs> right? So it's not that the church is called upon to resolve all societal conflict, but when and where it does accommodate those things, it, it, it has to use biblical categories and discuss it. And I don't find us, I haven't seen in public, maybe I'm not consuming enough content of other people, I don't know. I've never seen what I just said said by anybody else, not in public. Because it seems pretty clear to me, like if we have totally different convictions, and that's historically what we've done, and the Missouri Senate has talked about, uh, you know, political parties in the U.S., I mean, under different circumstances, but you can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, you can be a Missouri Senate Lutheran. Well, they had differently informed consciences about the size of government or taxation, you know, whatever. We recognize that that couldn't be decided theologically so we can tolerate it in the church. But only under certain circumstances, right? Because if we, if we had somehow said, well, you know, let's just all admit we're all basically Republicans at this point, except in certain places. So let's just say you have to be a registered Republican to get into the church. Well, we would think that's absurd, but that's precisely what could and does happen. So I think the issue is that you have vastly differing convictions inside people's consciences. We're not actually discussing that. We're discussing kind of our attitudes to that, like, I want to be very safe, or I don't want to, or, or I don't want to be very safe, you don't want to be very safe, or I want to be accommodating. I think that's where most guys are. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I'm just responding to what you said. Yeah. It does seem like an awful lot of stuff that's sort of come from officialdom has been very much about let's be accommodating, yeah. right? Let's not judge one another. Right. Yeah. Let's not talk about what we did wrong. Right. Mistakes were made. Right. So, so I wonder if in some ways right now the attempt is to actually make sure this doesn't become divisive. Yeah, and that's, and that's fine. I don't, I don't think you can actually avoid. So if you say, think about the time, the, the time lapse between the persecution is ended and nobody's arguing whether Donatus should be Bishop of Carthage yet. That's a time in which the issue itself is apparently passed. That doesn't mean it won't come up again. So I think it's a little naive not to discuss things publicly because if you don't, it doesn't make them go away. That's, go ahead. Well, post-lockdown world and speaking of things that were done, you know, I, I don't think there's a way for us to avoid it because I think we're probably hanging in our ears right now of internet communion. And certain churches decided that that is, you know, perfectly valid, yeah. whereas you know, our seminaries and CTCR and many pastors have said that's absolutely invalid. Yeah. We cannot do that. Uh, and so now we have this, I think, go along to get along type of thing to say, let's, let's try not to talk about this because this will cause division. Mm -hmm. but, this, but this time of lockdown mm -hmm. has exposed a difference of opinion about something of, of this is my body, really as amazing. opposed to that is my body over there and over there and over there, and nobody can v validate it one way or the other. And then it comes down to the, uh, the, the question of the office of the ministry and the like. And so now we have this. It's going to affect our church body, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And we have to be willing to speak to it. Right. Yeah, we do. I mean, and that, I would stress, I mean, it would be wonderful if everything that was kind of centralized were talking about stuff. We're not. But it would be even more wonderful if local pastors were doing the work that they used to do, 
which is to discuss theological and practical issues for themselves without calling in. I mean, there were, there were some cases in which uh, the St. Louis faculty was asked for an opinion. They would usually give one, um, but the Wisconsin Synod Seminary would often send the opinion back and say, you have the Bible. You can figure it out. And I, there, there really is something to that. But, but okay, but that requires that, that you, you showed up and you discussed it. And if we can't do that, these are kind of basic levels of human functioning that really, really matter for church life. You showed up and you were willing to discuss it. And if that doesn't happen, it's not going to get resolved. It really doesn't matter if our faculty or anything else comes out and says, this is what you do. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I had a question earlier yes, in sir. your, uh, you were talking about the early church seeking, well, not seeking recognition in the government. Mm-hmm. How do we inculcate that kind of attitude mm-hmm. in our form of government? Where we're supposed to be, you know, we vote and we be in the government, but how do we inculcate that, not the same thing that they were? Yeah, yeah. So that does not, that does not pertain to like their, the life of a Christian in whatever he was doing in the city government or something, but um, the church not seeking recognition um, involves um, that. That basically involves thinking about church as having its own validity as such, okay, um, rather than being sort of potentially subject to regulation and agency of the government. Okay. Um, meaning that if, they, if the government begins to choose to regulate something, they may regulate it for you. So uh, let me take a you know, historically non-controversial example, prohibition. Uh, there was debate at prohibition about whether anyone would be allowed to have alcohol because many churches in the United States did not need it for communion in their mind, right? So an exception was made for the provision of sacramental wine Right. So in that case, um, the Missouri Synod, for example, did not try to defend the legitimacy of, you know, two kinds in the sacrament. They just asserted that they wanted to keep sacramental wine. And of course, it wasn't on the table in, say, Wisconsin, the way it was in Alabama. Right. And similarly, like when uh, not not ever saying, except in the case of Oregon, which never went into effect, but otherwise, there has never been a law in the United States saying you can't have Lutheran schools or private Christian schools. There have been laws saying you can't teach in German, even though like, almost your entire group only speaks German. The Missouri Synod didn't say, like, well, no, here's why this is okay and blah, blah, blah. They just urged their people to vote against the law. And they allied with the Catholics to get the law defeated in the case of Nebraska. So... I think, I think that presuming that you belong to this group, this group has its own legitimate interests, and you don't need to explain that to somebody or justify yourself, certainly not alone legally, that you will be supported and you won't be alone if you're in legal trouble, is one way, a better direction to go. Yeah. Yeah. If we look at any Christian nation throughout history, either past or present, uh, there's always sort of just a canon of martyrs that it takes for that Christian to be, or for that nation to become Christian in the first yeah. place. So, what do you think it's going to take for America to go from being a Masonic nation essentially to being a Christian nation? <laughs> I think I think he asked the wrong guy. Um, um, I don't. Okay, I don't agree with that. But um, 
I think because America is an extension of Christendom, okay, um, and we are decadent, but that is not uh, that is not that we were. I don't know. I, I I'm not into Catholic conspiracy theories, basically. Um, so uh, the canon of martyrs for a nation, you have that in some cases, but not every you know, patron saint of a nation dies violently, right? So patron saint of Wales, you might think it's David, it's also actually Chad, and they don't die, they don't die violently. Um, so I don't, I don't think of martyrs as historically necessary to a nation's well-being. Okay, so maybe I disagree with that premise too. I think martyrs come about when and where there is a severe conflict between Christ and Satan that results in the death of some of Christ's people. Sometimes that happens before a nation is Christian, sometimes it happens after. I'm also honestly pastorally pretty dubious that Christianization means anything internally. I honestly am. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think Luther is when he's being honest about things. Christianization generally simply means that we get to corner the market on religious goods. That's what that means. It brings with it its own struggles. Um, that's what that means. So Christianization in the case of the United States means we generally had the same range of religious options that you would find anywhere you find English-speaking people and then whatever immigrants brought over. That's now gone. Now it's kind of whatever you want to do. So uh, what will it take for that to change? I don't know if it will take enormous suffering. I have no idea, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, my ancestors weren't Masons. So and we've, we're here. We've been here. So yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, so it seems like there's a fear to be a broken record. Um, like, I mean, I just know this from just struggles that, like, my dad went through with certain theological issues. And after a while, it's like, we're talking about the ministry again, you know? Like, we're, you know, <laughs> we're talking about the call, okay, yep. Um, and so I wonder, it, it was this, did, did you see any evidence of this in, in, your, in your studies of like these kind of downtimes when maybe persecution wasn't quite as high that the issues became sort of stale for people? That they, the, the wound had kind of calloused over a little bit? Yeah, okay. That's a really good question because uh, something that is definitely changing throughout this time period is the nature of church government. Um, it's generally becoming more centralized. There are exceptions in the case of the North Africans, but it's generally becoming more centralized and um, they're not discussing that, I think, openly enough that they are coming to conform themselves more to how Roman government works rather than the more local structure that you find in the New Testament. Um, and so even though I think church government, is, it's exactly the kind of thing that only matters at a time like this, right? Like, I, you know, 364 days of the year, you don't care at all what the polity of the Missouri Senate is. And then there's a voters' assembly where you're going to be kicked out. And then it really matters <laughs> what the polity of the Missouri Senate is. So um, that is changing. I think having bishops be highly centralized regional figures 
makes the church more fragile because the stakes of one man going down increase that a lot when it's that centralized. When this is one bishop and that's a city we don't even like, it doesn't matter as much. When that's the guy in charge of everything for five hours in any direction, you know, on horseback, let's say, um, then it really matters if he falls or if he is, let's say, compromised. So, so I mean, one, one factor that might play in is today, uh, things are so fast-paced, right? So, but yeah. with, a, with a visitor who is, you know, kind of the guy, he's, um, news, news sticks, it seems like it used to stick around a lot, for a lot longer, right? So, is there like an ADHD that we have today that kind of separates <laughs> us from, you know, where we just, we have kind of a goldfish syndrome? Uh, where, where we and, and, and that, 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 that mobility both physically as well as like yeah. uh, communicationally yeah. kind of allows us to sort of not have to think about you know like you know with the whole shutdown thing I, uh, you know I, I don't have to think about it because I can watch the Rittenhouse case now or something you know like there's <laughs> yeah right um <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay, I, I, yeah, I think that's a big part of it because I don't think we dealt with it, but we don't feel like we need to because it feels like it was a long time ago depending on where you are. I mean, I said I was just in California yesterday. California feels like, I mean, Indiana never felt like that with COVID, but it still feels like that. People just kind of wear masks outside, like in addition to everywhere inside. Unless, like, an exception was the church where they said, here's what Santa Clara County says. It's posted. You can do that if you want to. We're not going to police it. Some did, some didn't. It wasn't a big deal. But the norm, the social norm, as well as the political norm, is masks. And I think Santa Clara County is, like, 80% vaccinated. So, so they have, like, a definite norm. Um, and that feels like a different world from where I flew from. Right. So uh, because that all changes so rapidly and is so localized, if it's not being discussed locally, I, I mean, I can give you a general guideline. But what can I tell you about how to get from where you are to what I think the general guideline should be? <coughs> yeah. So I think uh, something that maybe hasn't happened enough, uh, really, it's either going to happen or we are going to fall apart, is we have to accept responsibility for our own theology. If we don't do it and it doesn't happen locally, then it's just not going to happen. It, it really doesn't. Yeah, that that has to occur. Yeah, and it and you see it happening in the early Missouri Synod. They do do that. Yeah, and they discuss doctrine mainly when they come together. <laughs>